0: RPC Radio Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode...
1: I think kind of the changing regulatory environment also does lead to lots of business opportunities. So compliance are well placed to help identify those opportunities and work with businesses to help capitalise on those opportunities.
0: My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Rebecca Reedy and we're going to discuss the world of insurance compliance. Rebecca spent nearly eight years at the international law firm CMS as a professional indemnity litigator specialising in construction claims. In 2013, she transferred that skill set to Beasley, where she started as a claims manager, handling large architect and engineer claims, but was subsequently promoted to become a portfolio claims team manager. However, in 2018, she moved away from the joy of claims into the world of compliance and she is now Beasley's Head of Compliance, UK and Rest of World, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Rebecca, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Peter.
0: And we should make clear right at the outset that uh, you're on in your, sort of your personal capacity and therefore any views expressed are your personal views rather necessarily than those kind of official views of Beasley. But when you set out on your legal career, Rebecca, Did you ever imagine that you would end up in insurance compliance? So how on earth did that happen?
1: Honestly, no, I didn't. Um, So I started out with a music degree and a law conversion course. But it was really the people that got me into insurance who I met during my legal training, the people that make the industry what it is, the clients I met and the team at my insurance law firm. And it was the people that tempted me into compliance too. So when I was approached about my current role, I saw it as an opportunity to work with a really interesting leader, Rob Anafi, who is now the chief risk officer of Beasley. So it was the people to start with. But then after some uh, initial discussions, I came to realize how much more there is to compliance. You get the opportunity to get under the skin of what goes on behind the scenes of insurance operations. You get insight into and influence over everything that goes into making an insurance company run.
0: And I I should say that this is the second episode in a two-parter that we're doing on regulation and compliance. The last episode was with Alan Shepherd of the Prudential Regulation Authority, and we discussed kind of the financial regulation of insurers. That episode, of course, kind of reflected the viewpoint of one of the two regulators of insurance, and if I'd been more organised, uh, I would have organised an episode with the other regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, as well. But I'm I'm not, and I haven't. Um, so instead, we're going to go straight to the the insurers' viewpoint on regulation and on compliance. So, uh, Rebecca, I guess we should start with a summary of what we mean by compliance in the first place. So, kind of, please could you give us a definition?
1: So, I guess several aspects to compliance. At its heart, it's about enabling the business to achieve its strategic objectives and helping to minimize the risks that could hinder those objectives. So the number one priority to achieving that is keeping our regulators on side, helping them understand what the business is doing and wants to achieve. And on the other side, helping everyone around the business understand what the regulators want and how we can run our business in a way that keeps the regulators happy. And if we don't do that well enough, the regulators have real powers to limit companies' growth plans and business ambitions. So another part of our role is scanning the horizon for regulatory developments that may impact those business plans or, on the flip side, help create opportunities. So the way we do that, we're advising the business on how to apply regulations to their ongoing business needs. We're advising to ensure that our entities and our people and those we do business with have the right licensing and permissions. We're protecting against financial crime. We're looking at conduct across the business and ensuring we have the right culture and ensuring that the business is ensuring good outcomes for customers. We're looking at how we can train and educate people around the business. And importantly, we're looking at assurance for the board and how we can provide that assurance driven by kind of monitoring work that we're doing around the business, that everything is going in the right direction.
0: But what would you say are the the main responsibilities for an insurance compliance team?
1: Hmm. So if we take it to its highest level, I would look at why we exist as a team. So our purpose is driven by Solvency 2, which is the main regulation currently governing UK insurers. And Solvency 2 requires three lines of defence as part of an effective risk management system. So the first line is where the risk enters into the organization and the risk is owned. So that's not just the risks that we're insuring as an insurer, but also any other risks that the organization is subject to. So regulatory and legal risk, operational risk, credit risk, reputational risk, enterprise risk, I could go on. So these are the risks that sit with the people on the front line, the doers. So you're underwriting claims, finance, IT, data, HR, ops. Then the second line of defence is where compliance sits. And this is the risk oversight part of the three lines of defence that Solvency 2 requires. So we're overseeing the people responsible for delivery. We're inputting into a risk management framework. And we are um, advising, reviewing and challenging what those people in the first line of defence are doing. And then just to kind of complete the picture, the third line, is the risk assurance, and that's where your in internal audit functions come in, and they have the independent challenge and the assurance over what we're doing in the first line and second line.
0: In the midst of that, you, you use three words which I, I really like: so advising, reviewing, and challenging. Which is. Yeah, it seemed to be a neat summary to me kind of 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 what you do.
1: Absolutely. And always in the back of our mind is that kind of strategic objective and how is what we're doing linking back to what the business is trying to achieve and how is that going to play out with the regulators so that the regulators are on board with what we're trying to
0: achieve. And how would you describe your role as uh, the head of compliance, kind of UK and the rest of the world?
1: So I report into the global head of compliance and I'm part of a leadership team of a global compliance team of nearly 50. So I'm involved in managing the regulatory relationships um, with our regulators together with the global head of compliance. And we've got managers leading each regulatory team Um, involved in leading compliance input into strategic projects around the business and regulatory change projects driven by requirements of the regulators. Uh, I need to make sure that we've got all the right skill sets within the team and that we're adequately resourced to support the global head of compliance in his role. He's a regulated role, so he's on the hook to the PRA and FCA to ensure that we are able to deliver everything the compliance function needs to deliver. And we need to make sure we've got the right skill sets and resource to do that. I'm also looking at strengthening our compliance framework. Do we have the right processes and governance in place to be able to evidence to our regulators how we're operating Are we making the best use of technology and data to be as efficient as we can? And are we thinking ahead enough to what compliance might need in the future? Another large part of my role, I'd say, is joining the dots across the team and across the business and making sure that the right people are talking to each other and kind of adding that that company organization-wide knowledge um, to good effect. I work closely with other assurance functions, so our risk team that I talked about, our internal audit team legal and regulatory risk um, is just one part of the overall risk framework and of course in my role I'm empowering and supporting and challenging our brilliant team in all the good work that they are doing.
0: So it's quite a small role in other words. (laughs) (laughs) I love it (laughs) yes. I mean it it sounds it sounds as though kind of the your, your role is to do the uh, how can I put it? Maybe, maybe it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's it's the thinking outside of the box. It, it's it's it, you call it connecting the dots, but but it seems to me that, that you're there to think. Okay, what is it that people are missing? Mm. What, what, what is it that isn't being done that needs to be done? Uh, what's falling between the cracks? I, I think that was probably about four cliches all all in one one question.
1: <laughs> but I, I think it's a real balance in my role between some of the operational side of kind of keeping the show on the road, but carving out enough time to have that strategic thinking and that forward thinking and the joining the dots because that is important. And I think that is really where compliance adds its value.
0: So how many regulators do you have to deal with? We've already mentioned the Prudential Regulation Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. I mean, to what extent is, would you regard Lloyd as a regulator um, as well?
1: Absolutely, yes. In the UK, Lloyd is a key regulator of all the business that we write through our syndicates, and since Brexit, Lloyd's Europe as well.
0: So, okay, so, so that's the UK, but um, you know, how many other regulators do you have to deal with around the world? Presumably there's dozens of them.
1: Absolutely. There's, it's split between key regulators who we deal with quite frequently, very frequently, um, where we have entities and branches set up. So these would include the Central Bank of Ireland, Lloyd's Europe, as I mentioned, in the US the Connecticut Department of Insurance in Switzerland Finnmark for our Swiss branch and, and how
0: often do you liaise with these regulators is is it something which sort of, sort of crops up once a year like Ofsted or whatever or or, or is it a daily basis or yeah i mean how, how often do you interact with them
1: it really varies from regulator to regulator but um, with our key regulators we have regular contact you know it will be kind of on a weekly if not daily basis sometimes. Um, We will have regular catch-up meetings, calls, um, there'll be emails in between. We also have a series of planned meetings between the regulators and senior management and board members throughout the year. We also have other touch points with the regulators, so we'll be providing regular returns to them about our business, key data about our business. They might also require ad hoc information requests or returns, so around exposure to specific incidents or situations, for example, a hurricane or COVID-19. Regulators will issue us with regular guidance to the market or dear CEO letters, you know, as they're developing their expectations on something, letting us know what they think. Um, For example, the FCA guidance on customers in financial difficulty. Regulators will issue their business plans and that will give us a good idea of what they're thinking about and what we need to be working towards. They will also issue supervision letters to us as an individual firm, highlighting the key priorities for the year that they want us to focus on. Then throughout the year, regulators will conduct thematic reviews, so deeper dives into areas that they're looking at market-wide, or they'll do thematic reviews or risk assessments of areas that are specific to our business where they want to get a better understanding. And, And on an annual basis, our key regulators all get together to share views and meet with us and ensure that they're receiving consistent messages around what we're doing at the
0: business. Um, we, we, let's move on to some topics now. Um, <laughs> and kind of based on what you've said so far, Rebecca, that there's, there are no shortage of topics that we, that we could discuss. We're just going to stick to sort of two or three of the major ones. And, and the first one is, is the XCA's the new consumer duty. The, the new rules were published last July, as I understand it, 2022, uh, and they're currently in the process of, of being implemented. But could you introduce us to that topic—that the the FCA's new consumer duty and, and what the new regulations mean for kind of uh, for you practically?
1: At its heart, it's around ensuring good outcomes for UK customers. And that's broadly defined as individuals, sole traders, micro and small enterprises and some medium sized enterprises. Ensuring good outcomes doesn't mean that the customer is always right or that they get their claim paid no matter what. But if implemented correctly, the consumer duty should significantly reduce the chances of unhappy customers with unpaid claims or with complaints about service because of four key areas that the consumer duty focuses on. So, firstly, the customer would have bought a product or service that is targeted to them and understands their needs. Secondly, they would have paid a fair price for it and the product would offer fair value. Then, thirdly, they would have a good understanding of the product and what it can and can't offer them. And they will have been well supported finally at every stage of their interactions. So, in the case of an insurance firm, that would be from the customer's initial search for insurance cover that they need through to making the claim and receiving the payment or making a complaint. The consumer duty also requires firms to act in good faith to avoid foreseeable harm for customers and to support customers to pursue their financial objectives. So you asked about what consumer duty means in practice. So implementing it means different things for different firms. For example, some big household name insurers selling motor or home insurance will have almost their entire book of business within scope for consumer duty. They'll have lots of direct contact with customers. They'll have call centers. They'll have online portals managing sales and claims and so on. Within the Lloyds market, again, insurers, brokers, managing agents, cover holders, delegated claims adjusters will all be impacted in different ways given the differing roles each has in creating insurance products and interacting with the ultimate customer. And in practice, this has meant testing everything from the customer perspective. So is the website easy to navigate? Are the wordings clear as to what is and isn't covered? How are firms adapting their communications and support where customers are vulnerable or have differing needs? Are firms offering access to Braille or audio policy wordings, for example? What Barriers might exist to a customer making a claim or trying to adjust their cover. So at a high level, firms implementing the duty also need to find ways to evidence that there's a culture in place that focuses on customers. And they need to be able to show how this is embedded from senior management right through to the most recent joiner in a call center or the IT developer creating a portal for making a claim or the team designing a new finance process. So it it's throughout the organization and not just kind of on those necessarily who we traditionally see as kind of frontline customer facing.
0: You're right at the outset, when you're talking about kind of the role and, and what compliance means, you mentioned the word culture and you mentioned it again there as part of the FCA's duty that somehow that, that it has to be part of the culture of an organization to be I was going to use the word consumer centric, but I apologise to <laughs> all, all people who dislike kind of made up words. But the role of actually influencing culture is extraordinary. To think that that is almost forms part of the of the client the, the compliance responsibility. I'm fascinated by this this kind of the that the culture becomes a compliance issue.
1: So I'd say our angle on culture is linked to the regulatory interest in culture. So we are there to help help everyone understand, you know, the FCA's increasing focus on culture and how that focus on culture then feeds into various different FCA initiatives. And the PRA is also kind of increasingly focused on culture as well. So we're there to help with the kind of implementation and setting the framework that is going to help embed that culture. When it comes to kind of ongoing ownership that's where the senior management comes in and that's where the tone from the top and embedding it kind of in the first line ownership really comes to the fore
0: yeah i mean what, what this is showing to me is that, that i mean lots of people might, might have a view of compliance as people who enjoy putting ticks in boxes and and what you're saying is that 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 is so far removed from what compliance actually is it, it's, it's not just you know, are you doing this tick? Are you doing this tick? It is much more embedded in the the personality, the culture, the, the character, every element of, of what a business is doing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we. I, I feel we get less of that now than maybe even when I started in compliance a few years ago. But that tick box mentality, hopefully everyone is moving away from that because the regulators themselves are moving more from prescriptive regulation towards principles-based outcome focused regulation. So what are you actually delivering? What are you trying to achieve here? They'll give a bit more leeway as to how you go about achieving that. And that comes back to that link that I talked about earlier around making sure that we're here to enable those business objectives. So that is always the outcome we're wanting to achieve. And we want to find the most cost effective, streamlined way for us to get there as a business so that you know we're not adding extra layers of bureaucracy and tick boxes and you know cross checking here and there but we are finding a way that it is going to evidence to the regulator how we are achieving those outcomes
0: so that's the the uh, the, the new consumer duty now solvency 2 <laughs> and kind of the the changes to solvency 2 as a result of uh the UK leaving the the European Union so um, these all cropped up um, in, in the last episode with, with Alan Shepard. But obviously, he was looking at it from the, the regulator's perspective. And I'm very interested to hear your perspective of Solvency 2 and the changes that are being made um, and how these developments will, will affect your role in compliance.
1: So we are watching these developments closely. And I'm sure um, in the time between recording this and releasing the podcast, things will have moved on. But as things stand you know, the Solvency 2 reforms are they're aiming for more streamlining of the rules around the internal models that insurers use to calculate solvency and the amount of capital that they need to hold to ensure they can remain viable and pay claims when needed. The changes are also allowing further flexibility in what assets insurers can use to calculate that capital and a change, a reduction in the risk margin, which is actually the amount of capital buffer that insurers must hold. So I guess our role, if, particularly if we're looking around Solvency 2, is around continuing to monitor and communicate developments, helping to implement those changes around the business. And on Solvency UK, liaising with the regulators when the time comes to explain what changes we are making to our models and to our capital structures to align with the new regulation. I think kind of closely linked to Solvency 2, we've got lots of other reforms in the pipeline as well. So there's this whole kind of bucket of post-Brexit reforms. So the financial services and market bill, where it's kind of adding changes to the remits of our regulators and adding secondary objectives to the FCA and the PRA, requiring them to focus on the competitiveness and the growth of the UK. Requiring them to contribute towards net zero emissions.
0: You mentioned in that kind of net zero, which is obviously the the, the E of ESG, mm-hmm. and ESG has been growing exponentially over the last kind of few years. Mm-hmm. So, what changes have you seen, and what future changes do you anticipate seeing in the next few years uh, in ESG?
1: Well, ESG has been a key regulatory priority over the last few years, and I'd say especially. On the E side, um, has been where the focus has been, so on the environmental side. Regulators, not just in the UK, but around the world, have been looking at implementing climate risk frameworks. Actually, the EU has been a big driver in a lot of ESG um, regulation. Also looking at disclosure and reporting requirements. How are firms actually reporting their carbon emissions and their progress against ESG against the ESG framework. So it's, it's been an ongoing supervisory priority. You talked about net zero. The Net Zero Insurance Alliance is a collection of leading insurers and reinsurers where the members have committed to transition their insurance and reinsurance underwriting portfolios to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. At the time of recording... In a bit of a depleted state following the departure of so many high-profile insurers, including Lloyd. Um, And the reason why so many are leaving is is due to um, anti-competition concerns. But also, there's probably an interesting US angle that links to the wider ESG point. So, you know, there's this massive ESG movement. There's a massive drive by regulators, certainly here in the UK and in the EU, on a pro-ESG side, but there is also an angle in the U.S. where there's increasing anti-ESG sentiment. And that goes wider than just the environmental side. But you've got states such as Florida with the Stop Woke Act essentially prohibiting firms from rolling out diversity training, anything that may kind of relate to protected characteristics and kind of seeing, being seen in a discriminatory way. You've got other states in the United States that are implementing or have considered implementing various anti-ESG measures that really pose risks for any firm that wants to embed ESG into their business, into their investments, into their policies or procedures or into their disclosures. And that kind of plays against the kind of regulatory requirements to, to make ESG disclosures. So there's some very interesting angles on there. On the S side, so the kind of social side of ESG, diversity and inclusion is Another regulatory hot topic, certainly here in the UK, we've had various papers from the PRA and FCA, and we're expecting a consultation paper to come out later this year. And and what they've been looking at so far is around kind of that inclusion. So there's a lot around diversity and increasing the representation, but it's also around how do you create that inclusive culture? And this comes back to the culture piece that we were discussing Mm. earlier. Um, but there, yeah. there's a lot on data and metrics and also how do you embed the culture and the inclusion within senior leadership?
0: Exactly. And, and, and I find it fascinating how kind of stuff which is regulation, that we, we would perceive as pure regulatory issues, are somehow dragged into the wider political culture walls. And you know, on one level, I, I find it fascinating that that stuff which has always been perceived as business is becoming... Kind of, it uh, is overlapping with areas which people would regard as politics or morality.
1: I'm interested in your your comment on pure regulatory issues because, sort of, I don't see it. I I don't sort of carve things out as pure regulatory issues because to me it's so that the reason we have the regulation it's so interlinked with the kind of commercial side of things, the business side of things, and the wider environment. And it's it's often the wider environment that drives some of those regulations. But to me. You can't carve these things up; they're all they so interlinked. And again, that's why I love compliance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that is coming across, which is uh, you'd be pleased to hear. Um, uh, so, uh, as if new consumer duty is not enough, uh, solvency, two uh, ESG. Are there any other hot topics, hot areas in compliance at the moment that you want to you want to mention?
1: I think we've touched briefly on operational resilience and outsourcing. I think that is one which has been a focus and will remain a focus. And I think the other one, which is almost kind of interlinked with the, the outsourcing point, is AI. It's come to the fore very recently. It's been, it's been around for a while. It has become much more um, commonly talked about since ChatGPT came, mm. came to the fore um, over the last few months. Um, so I think what you'll find is um, firms thinking about developing AI policies. Some firms might even look to get in place uh, a chief AI officer in the way that, you know, we we now have a data protection officer. Um, we have a chief information security officer. I feel this is kind of one of those areas where, where firms might kind of want to collate ownership of that within a single person. I mean, the FCA have had various kind of papers on AI. There's a discussion paper out at the moment on AI uses. And I think the FCA is really looking to try and develop its regulatory framework, assess, you know, how much can AI sit within the current framework? Are there areas that actually need to be pulled out into kind of a separate framework? But I think kind of there's going to be several points that firms need to consider as we as we look to build out use of AI, both within kind of internal, for internal uses and kind of more more for product uses as well. So more where, you know, where things are facing customers, it's going to be around that transparency, how can we explain to the regulators the decisions that are being made and evidence that they're being made fairly without bias? How can we make sure that we're making it clear to customers when they are interfacing with AI? But I think AI is really kind of the next, um, well, the current and next big focus.
0: And, and one thing which is coming across incredibly clearly kind of throughout the whole of this uh, episode is just the, the, the incredible breadth of regulation and I know that kind of Steve White uh, the president of Biba uh, the British Insurance Brokers Association uh, was recently reported to have have criticized the the FCA and for having too many regulations um, for for brokers so this is for brokers Um, what's your perspective on on that criticism and um, and on the amount of regulation that insurers have to deal with
1: I can see that from one angle the government is trying to take that step back and ask, is the level of regulation we have preventing our competitiveness globally? On the other hand, as I've kind of mentioned earlier, much of that regulation has been developed in response to identified need. From a personal perspective, I think the ever-changing regulatory environment keeps things very interesting. Um, And I'd say balancing against criticism about the cost of complying with regulation, I'd say we are seeing regulators become more pragmatic. They're moving to principles-based regulation. They do understand the commercial realities of implementing regulation in a cost-effective way. And as I said before, I think kind of the changing regulatory environment also does lead to lots of business opportunities. So Compliance are well-placed to help identify those opportunities and work with businesses to help capitalise on those opportunities.
0: And to, to conclude, Rebecca, you clearly enjoy your role, but how would you sell it to someone who might be thinking about compliance as a career? Why should they join the compliance team of wherever it is they're working?
1: I would say it's a combination of the experience you get and the skills that you would develop and the opportunities. So from an experience perspective, you'd understand the mechanics of an insurance company. You'd get insights into strategy, experience of operations. You get to deal with everyone in the company from the underwriting assistant who joined yesterday to the CEO. And as we've talked about earlier, you get the chance to influence the company culture. You'll develop skills. Um, So alongside the technical knowledge, You'd learn how to communicate complex concepts clearly. You'd be diplomatic, get a data and analytical mindset, build relationships, work collaboratively, solve problems and help bring together many perspectives. And I think together, those give you opportunities to develop expertise and take responsibility from very early in your career. And career-wise, I think it opens up doors. So... You could continue in compliance. You can continue within the insurance functions of compliance, risk or audit. And I think those lead to kind of skills that are really valued at a senior level, at a board level, if, you know, that's where you're kind of looking ultimately 10, 20 years down the line. But I also think it gives you potential to move to many other roles within the organization or the wider insurance industry, because those skills are really brilliant skills for for many, many roles today. So, I would say all of that, but if my team are listening to this, don't go anywhere.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.